Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, non-clinical jobs, and burnout prevention. My name is Mike Gazbeck, and I'm joined today, as always, by John McDonald. John, how are you? I'm just glad you said most of the time. Our illustrious co-host. Well, good morning, sir. So today, uh, John, we've got a great topic. I We're going to dive right into it. I want to talk about effort levels in healthcare. Are you, are you saying how much you should be putting in effort-wise as an employee or what you should be demanding of your workforce? Well, let's frame it this way. So recently, well, June, so not too recent, but in June of 2023, the Harvard Business Review put out an article and I get it as a newsletter. So it came up in my inbox. And the title of the article is To Build a Top Performing Team, Ask for 85% Effort. And the the premise of it is that if you ask your employees or if you as an employee give a 100% effort, this does not actually lead to optimal results, but rather puts you in a position for high risk of burnout and potentially lower performance because of burnout, because of exhaustion. So I'd love to dive into that because obviously we talk about burnout a lot. And I think the concept of 85% effort is A, maybe a little bit foreign to most, but B, also very foreign to the healthcare space, where I think we very much still have that maximum effort for maximum results mentality. So let me start there. I'd love to kick it over to you and just get your thoughts of the more broad category of 85% effort. And then we can actually go through this article and maybe dissect it point by point and try and discuss how it relates to healthcare. Okay, so it reminds me of when I was in high school and wrestling. They would always say, all right, go 50%, go 75% when we would be, we'll we'll just call it sparring with each other. Because you you don't really always want to go 100% when you're going against your teammates. So they would give us a percentage. And I just remember thinking, what does that even mean? Like, what is my 50%? Because my 100% is usually means I'm, exhausted, dizzy, and throwing up over exertion. So it was always hard for me to gauge it. So I would kind of just go to the level of what my teammate was going and try to match that in a sense, maybe just a little bit more just to take him down. But so I think that this is a difficult question to answer and a hard uh, concept to frame in anybody's mind because 85% for one person may not be the same for another. But maybe that's the point, though, Mike, is you should be going 85% of your total and not what your colleagues are going or what you're, even your boss is necessarily demanding. Yeah. So I like the quote here. Early on in the article, there's a quote that I think is applicable to what you're describing. And it says, when managers expect 80 plus hours a week from people while offering Friday yoga to combat stress, they unintentionally create a toxic contradiction. So I think think that's right where everybody is going to be different but one of the ways I think we can frame this is that we're not necessarily looking at this as a results oriented or I'm sorry as a yeah we're not looking at it as simply everybody's 100% effort or 85% effort is going to result in the same outcome but rather making sure that everybody is working at a pace that is sustainable to them 
you're still going to have high performers. You still may have low performers, but we shouldn't be driving the low performers into the ground, asking 110% to try and get them to catch up. And conversely, the high performers, I think so often in workplaces, just more and more get shoveled on high performers because they can handle it. And they end up carrying an outsized share of the burden, which then leads to a different type of burnout. They call it the engaged, exhausted burnout, where you have someone that's highly engaged in the company, but is just surely exhausted because they can't keep up with the pace that maybe they've even internally set for themselves. So I, I think that's right, where maybe there is a delineation between outcome or results and effort. We don't want to always equate the two. So when I was a manager at first, I remember my management, my superiors, when I was mentioning the performance of some of my teammates uh, and also some of my direct reports, they, they had said, I, I was just, you know, saying, hey, person A, they, they just aren't, it was called Jennifer. Jennifer is just not putting in the level that she should. I feel like she can put in a lot more. It, it's coming off as lazy to me. And I was kind of griping about it. And my manager said, listen, not everybody is performing to the same level. You need to understand that there are going to be very high performers, uh, people with high aspirations, and there are going to be low performers and people who are satisfied. They didn't mean status quo in a negative sense, but they're just happy where they are and they're meeting the job requirements. And I remember that frustrating me at first as a manager, but now that I'm uh, further out in my career and have had a lot more experiences and worked on a lot more teams, uh, it does take experience to understand that you have to give people space. Not everybody is going to perform. There's not a set standard across the United States that if you don't meet this, you're underperforming. We do need a human aspect uh, when we look at these folks and say, what is their 100%? Um, not what is my expectation for 100%? So yeah, I, I'm going to kick it back to you and ask, so if we're asking people to give 85% to 100%, depending on who you are, how do you manage your team in a, in, in a way that you're not expecting more of others causing resentment and less of others uh, potentially leading to laziness? Sure. So here, let's go through actually point by point on the article, and I'm going to list them off, the recommendations that they give, and then I, we'll circle back around and actually discuss each one. But in the Harvard Business Review article, here are the recommendations that they have to build a high-performing team without burning out people. So obviously, this is looking at it from a management perspective. But as we go through and discuss it, we can discuss it not only as leaders in a healthcare team, as licensed healthcare professionals are so often in a leadership position, but then also from an employee perspective as well as employees or more outwardly focused of how we approach our employer or interact with our employer. So we have first create a done for the daytime. So basically a, a hard cutoff of when work is done and the expectation from management is not to continue working beyond this point. Maybe a little bit hard in healthcare, which is what, what I want to talk about. Ask for a little less than maximum capacity. So asking for an intensity that is below 100%. Ask how am I making your work more stressful than it needs to be? So this is a, a great one from a leadership perspective, I think, of just making sure that managers are constantly level setting and checking to see if they're doing things that are causing that stress and burnout to rise. 
encourage 85% right decisions. So I like that one. We'll circle back around because I am not a perfectionist and I think I'm unusual in medicine that way. Watch out for high pressure language. End meetings 10 minutes early. So those are the, I think it was five recommendations that were given in this. So let's circle back around and go through them line by line because I'd love to discuss whether they're applicable to healthcare. And then, like I said, not only from a leadership perspective, but then also from an employee perspective, what we think about them. So let's start with create a done for the daytime. And I'm going to give a couple thoughts on this because even within our uh, department here at my clinical job, I think we've done a decent job with this where with our employees or with our providers, I should say, we have generally had a an approach where there's an expectation you're going to see this many patients per week, but how you get there, we want to give each provider a lot of autonomy because I think that really helps with job satisfaction. So if someone wants to work five days a week and work eight-hour shifts, great. If someone wants to work four tens, great. If someone wants to work three twelves, great. And the cool thing is since the pandemic, we have telemedicine. So if someone wants to work, you know, three twelves or three thirteens, we can, you know, have the second half of their day or the last four hours of their day be on telemedicine. So we don't have to staff that with secretaries or check-in staff, things like that. So we have an incredible amount of autonomy and flexibility so that the providers can really set a schedule that works for them, that works at their pace. But within that, we also really try and stress the expectation from an employer standpoint is not that you're going to see patients during your 40-hour work week and then go home and do 20 hours worth of administrative tasks. So if we have someone who is struggling to do all their clinical work and get all their admin work done, it may be a performance issue. It may be something where they're just not meeting expectations because generally here, everybody is expected to have a baseline level of performance and that's driven by revenue calculations. You know, how many patients are you seeing based on how much money you cost in terms of compensation, benefits, all that. If they're below that, I think it's a good opportunity to say, okay, where where are we missing the ball here? Is there something in terms of your charting that is maybe inefficient or is there something in your workflow with patient care that's inefficient that can be improved but we always have to be cautious that people aren't working 70 hours a week just to get the work done because that's where i think burnout can come so finding that good balance there but i think the other aspect of this and this is where maybe i'd kick it to you is healthcare's hard because if you are a floor nurse and the icu is short-staffed you know, having a hard exit time of, okay, this is our done for the daytime. Well, in theory, that works because your shift is going to end at this stage. But what if you get forced over? Or what if your replacement is an hour late? Well, you can't just leave the ICU. You can't just say, sorry, I'm done. My shift's over. So it, it's hard in healthcare because I think a lot of these management principles that we can accept as, as good and maybe at this stage universally known to be effective or help reduce burnout are not always applicable in certain healthcare roles. So I think there, I'm going to give an example from when Lucy's and, and we'll say even COVID was starting to become at its peak uh, in the retail pharmacy sector. For pharmacists, flu season is like tax season because you have your normal run-of-the-mill retail dispensing taking phone calls from physicians, counseling, normal status quo workday, but then you add on tens of thousands of flu shots in 
a matter of a couple months. So the workload gets a lot higher, but at my employer, we do have set schedules. Rarely do you have to stay later. However, during those times, you will find people who are just like, yeah, we are getting crushed. I'll stay later today. But our management has always been good about, okay, so you've stayed late this day. Let's let's make sure you get out early on a softer day. Or maybe we know the morning is going to be soft on this day. Come in an hour or two late. That's perfectly fine. Uh, taking the time to allow folks to make up those deficits whenever we can. That's for me, that was, that, that was always very helpful to know that my management usually has my back. And if they don't try and get me extra time out here or there, I know it's probably just an oversight because they normally do. So I think that there's ways that management can help our folks when, when those situations occur where you really can't just leave. You can't just leave the job. There is patience to be taken care of. Uh, Our employees won't have such a problem with it if they know our management will try and get them on the other end. But as you said, working 70 hours a week, that's really difficult to try and make a 20 to 30 hour difference over even weeks. So uh, 70 hours is a tough one to Agreed. I'm actually taking notes as you discuss this because I I'm I like the idea of taking each of these points and then maybe just adding a little bit of a caveat to it of how it can apply to healthcare. And I love the idea that in healthcare you may not be able to in every single role have it done for the daytime. You know, no one is going to it's not banking. You can't say, "Oh, the markets are closed 5 p.m. everyone go home. No one stay late." But the flip side to that is maybe the way in healthcare that you can create a done for the daytime is by allowing those flex times to offset those periods where maximal effort is required. So if you are in a surgical setting and you've got cases that go long because they're complicated, everybody is going to have to put in maximal effort. You know, the surgical tech can't leave. The OR nurse can't just leave. Everybody's there and they're, they're staying. So the flip side to that is as a manager or as an employer saying, hey, we had a really tough week. We had a lot of cases go long. Next week, we're going to schedule a little bit light to make sure that we get you guys out of here early. So I think that's part of what I think about in terms of the 85% rule is that when you're working at 85%, it also gives that little bit of margin so that when you do have to kick it into high gear and give that 100% effort, you're able to. It's almost like, I don't know if you ever ran track, but I, I did track in high school and you always wanted to kick at the end. So at the very end of a race, whatever you had left, you, you put it into high gear and went. If you ran at 100% effort right from the start, you would burn out. You would probably pass out and not finish the race. So you always have to pace yourself in a race and kind of figure out how much you can give so that at the end you still have some left, but then you can kick it in and, and finish strong. And I feel like that's what we see here is we need the ability to kick it into high gear, but we can't give that 100% every single day. That's not sustainable. There was a quote in this article where they it was right after the done for the day time. Uh, it mentioned a colleague told their boss, uh, told that the writer that their boss said in no uncertain terms, quote, you can't get ahead here if you want to be home for dinner with your family. Uh, it, I mean, that's, I feel like that's 
pretty obviously toxic. Uh, but you mentioned surgical. There are different personalities that are going to look at this very differently. Uh, have you ever watched? There's a guy on TikTok. His name is Dr. Glockham Fockham or something like that. Glock, Glockham. He always talks about ortho and the ortho bros. You know, they've got their 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 glasses, like their their thin frame running glasses, and they're always pounding fists and just being bros. And it always just seems like nothing bothers them. They just want to go, go, go. They're the special forces of the healthcare system and sleeplessness and high pressure stress situations don't seem to really get at them as much. Uh, and the military, I mean, when they're doing their weed outs uh, for who can get into what program, a lot of it is a psychological stress and examination to see who, for a lack of a better term, who will break easier than others. And we don't want to put them in these ranks. Uh, there are certain jobs, I think, for certain personalities. And if you're putting yourself in a stressful job or stressful situation that your body can't handle, that's when we talk about transitioning out of those roles and two different roles. That's that's kind of why we started this podcast to begin with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this kind of transitions into the next point that we were talking about where the next bullet point on the article says, ask for a little less than maximum capacity. And we're both reaching on that already. But one of the things that I think is really interesting from the article is here's the quote that it says is to help coach employees to get to and stay to stay in the sweet spot of the 85%. What does it feel like to be at 100% intensity and then follow up with how can you keep this closer to the 85% level? So I want to actually go with both of us and talk about what 100% intensity looks like for us because I, I actually have been much more intentional about this of making sure that I'm not burning myself out. And part of that is because I like to go at a very high pace. But because of that, I think I also have to be very careful. So for me, 100% intensity means that I'm getting up at 5 a.m. and I'm working from 5 to 6.30 at home to catch up on whatever work needs to be done. Then coming into the office, seeing patients, coming home, and then after the kids go to bed from 9 to 11, getting back on the computer and doing work. That's me at 100%. That gives me essentially three extra hours, an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half to two hours at night of extra time to work. And I really like doing that. I don't like working in the evenings, but I like working early in the morning, just getting up an hour early and having that time because I make a cup of coffee. The house is quiet. It's very productive, very peaceful time. But I kind of save that as my cheat card because I recognize that if I do that every single day, I'm going to get exhausted. But also with my personality, if I start getting up at 5 a.m. every day, I'm going to say yes to more things and then end up filling that time and then six months from now, I'd be talking about, oh, maybe I should just get up at 4 a.m. every day to have more time in the day. So I use that as my reserve capacity where if I've got a couple projects or you know a medical writing thing that I'm working on that has a definitive deadline and I'm falling behind on my tasks, then I'll start getting up early to play catch up. But I really try to keep that as my reserve capacity so that I'm not functioning at 100% in a position where I'm going to burn out. What about you? Yeah. Yo. I was thinking in a different, a little bit different of uh, aspect, but I'm going to follow yours because it makes a lot of sense how you put it. 100% for me is when I'm at, I want to work backwards though. When I'm at work, uh, every single grenade I'm jumping on, 
every single difficult task I'm I'm trying to take on myself, every new project, I'm the one that I'm trying to learn it and understand it better than anybody else so that I can disseminate the information. Uh, I am essentially trying to act as my manager's position. I was always taught, though, that if you want the next position, uh, do your boss's job. And it always seemed to work for me. So at work, that just means that I'm at my top level all the time and trying my absolute best to make sure that my coworkers and my direct reports are having as little stress as possible by putting that stress on me instead, uh, which of course caused burnout. But now when we add our second or third jobs or side hustles that we do, that means filling up all of my free time with these tasks. And if I feel like I'm resting too much, that means I need to add something else into my my schedule by taking on another partner or another side hustle to fill in that time. Just because I feel like me, I'm not contributing enough to myself, uh, to my family, to society even. And so I will just fill any small gap that I can because uh, I'm feeling like maybe I'm just being lazy because I'm enjoying my time rather than uh, just sitting in and saying, okay, I'm done. I'm done for the day. I've made the money I need to make. Done. Yeah, I think it's tough because even so last week I had a situation where I needed to give 100% or even beyond 100% if we want to be silly that way. And I struggled to do it and then I ended up screwing over my team as a result. So last week I was out of the office for a couple of days. We went to uh, Sierra Nevada and hiked. Those pictures were We'll talk about it. The night before we left, we had a couple other providers out of the office. So we were already running short staffed. And at the end of the day, I got my butt kicked in clinic. I had 32 notes to write. I had tons of scripts to send. So left work, went home, spent time with kids, spent time with family. And then at the end of the night, I had yet to pack and we were leaving first thing the next morning. I spent two hours on the computer sending scripts, trying to catch up on telephone encounters, trying to button everything up before I left for a couple of days, especially because I was going to be out of cell service. And I reached a point after a couple hours of work where I just got frustrated. I said, you know what? Screw this. I'm shutting the computer down. I don't have time to do this. I need to pack. I'm not willing to you know, go on this trip on three hours of sleep so that I can get my work done. Whatever's left is just going to get left. And as we're talking about this, I think maybe the initial reaction would be, oh, good for you, you know, good self-care, good boundaries, because I had already put in two hours after my normal workday trying to play catch up and just there was still stuff that needed to get done. But when I returned, I felt awful because I screwed my nurses over so hard because a lot of the stuff that I left unresolved in the days that I was gone, I was only gone for a couple days, but in those days that I was gone, the patients were calling wanting to know why their script hadn't been sent, why their out of work note wasn't done. And when I'm not there, it's not just one phone call. Very often, these people would call the nurses multiple times. Why isn't that script sent? And when their response is, well, Mike's out of the office, he'll address it when he comes back Monday. Patients aren't satisfied with that when they're waiting on their controlled substance to be refilled or when they need an out of work note for their disability. So I created a ton of extra work for my nurses and I feel awful about it. 
But the flip side to that is I also worked for two to two and a half hours after my normal nine hour workday had an immense amount of stuff that I had to get done before we left. So there wasn't a good answer per se, but at the same time, I needed to give more effort than I did, even though I felt like I was at 100%. But I, I dialed it back and shut the computer down before the work was done. And that ended up having a real impact on my team. It's arguable to say, though, that you still gave 100%, um, but the work that was demanded required more than that, which maybe you weren't able to give. So we'll take it off your shoulders for a second and say that the same exact thing happened at another clinic, and I'm going to call him Bob. So this is how I would look at it um, based off of how my workflow is. If there is that amount of work and you've already worked your full schedule and even a bit more, and there's still work to be done, that is a capacity issue for the clinic or the business themselves. And they're there should be contingency plans when these things exist. But that's where healthcare comes in. And it is different because whereas you have you know, Bob over in manufacturing and he's manufacturing uh, pieces of for Boeing, you know, planes, once his workday is done, these schedules are out for weeks, months, possibly even years where healthcare is a human right. And so when you have these patients calling and we're viewing it as human right, and we already feel like we are under reimbursed by insurance companies so that we're making the money to hire the people that we need. And you have on the other end, people saying, I need this stuff. And it seems to be a human right. Where, where's the give there? Are we going to have lower margins by hiring on more people? Are we not going to allow people to take vacations when they wanted to take a vacation? Where, because there is a rub there, Mike. Yeah, I agree. Now, part of it, you know, thank you for for trying to give me cover. But part of it is I I carry my own panel of patients. I set my own hours. I set my own schedule. So the, the the task management issue of the work not getting done because the tasks were too great for the the time assigned. Well, that's a me problem because <laughs> I'm the one assigning tasks. I'm the one managing the patient. So. I did not manage my time well, and I agree with that. And certainly in most cases with other listeners, that may be an employer problem if the employer is asking too much, because I think most licensed healthcare professionals, unless you own your own practice or have a situation where you have a high degree of autonomy, you're not having a ton of say over how you schedule patients or how many you see. It's usually going to be decided above you. But yeah, I, I think it's hard, right? Because that's the difficult thing is in manufacturing, you just get to take a day off. Or I always think about my siblings or, you know, friends that work more traditional jobs and get to A, work from home or B, just randomly take a day off. My brother-in-law has an office job and I feel like he's always just spontaneously taking a day off. If it's a nice day out, he'll just take the day off to go do something fun, you know, go golfing. It's like, oh man, that's nice because I have to think about my days off three or four months in advance. And that's always going to be there. That's not something that we can, you know, find a, a quick hit management solution to address because some of these things are just inherent to our profession. And that's what I think makes it so tough. But so before you had four kids and even before you're married, because people are getting married later, they're also having kids later in life or deciding not to have children. 
this type of schedule that you carry and that load that you carry really would probably be a lot easier without family and without those other responsibilities. And we do go through transitions in our life where we have to decide, can I maintain the same level that I was working at prior to? But the great thing is when we first started off, we kind of had to prove ourselves. Uh, and that might even just be an internal thing. We wanted to prove to our management and our colleagues that we are just as good as them. So we worked extra, extra hard, uh, got all the experience. And now here we are 10, 15 years later doing this job or functioning in a different role even where it's not so much our level of grit and elbow grease that makes our worth higher for our company or colleagues. It's our experience, the wisdom uh, that really lends to growing the business themselves. So we probably have to, what we in, I'm sure in the military terms, but also in sailing, because I used to sail, uh, is take a different tack. Like you got to go ahead and tack it. Just go ahead and change positions to where the wind is blowing and use that to power your direction. So maybe some folks are going into their experiential life and using their wisdom. Uh, I mean, we're going to get into consulting in a second, right? Because that's where a lot of these people go. But I mean, you find your capacity. If you feel like where you're at, at your job, just you can't ever get on top of it. Maybe it's time to think about taking a new tack. Yep, agreed. So I was today years old when I found out that a different tact was a sailing term, but just never connected. So that's great. Learn something new today. So let's talk about 85% right decisions. I think this is my favorite in the entire article because let me give you a little context. I mean, you know me well enough, but I am not a detail-oriented guy. I am not your traditional type A person that went into medicine. You could you could fool me though, Mike, really? with well, that's good because being detailed, but please keep going. <laughs> I feel like so many people that go into medicine are that type A personality, very, you know, high control, detail oriented. And I think it makes sense, right? In medicine, so often the little details matter. You know, if you leave a sponge in somebody in surgery, that's not a good thing. So even in school, I always felt like I didn't fit in because I never studied past 9 p.m. I even back in school, I was like, you know what? The, I'm not going to gain anything. If I know it, I know it. And I would study until the point where I was confident I would get a B on the test. I didn't need to get a 4.0. I didn't care. I was happy to get Bs and just pass. And looking back, I'm very thankful for that because I think my work-life balance or my school-life balance was quite good simply because I was comfortable studying to the point where I knew I had a competence of the material, but not to the point where I had a mastery of it. And in school, whether it be PA school, pharmacy school, med school, you're never going to become a master because there's just too much coming at you at once. So you need to, I think, be able to kind of triage and do some meatball surgery. But I'm really thankful for my personality type. And, you know, I didn't intentionally go into medicine because I'm not detail oriented. I think for me, though, it just worked out that I'm very good at making a decision, feeling confident that I'm at that 80 to 85% level of confidence in the decision and then moving on and not second guessing or questioning. And I think so often in healthcare, whether it be clinical decision making or even just in our careers, 
we get that paralysis by analysis where you're terrified that you're maybe ordering an MRI and going to make the wrong decision or you're going to miss something on the read or you're going to send someone home from the ER, you know, diagnosing them with uh, something benign where it's actually quite serious. And some of that fear is good. Some of that fear is necessary. I think in healthcare, if we don't have that healthy fear of the unknown or that fear of what we don't know, then that's a bad thing because arrogance can kill. But the flip side to that is I think we end up putting in more effort in having suboptimal results in terms of our productivity or output because of our pursuit of perfectionism. So I really love the concept of 85% right decisions because I think that can help with burnout if we internally can look at ourselves and say, how can I get to a point where I am confident that I know this, whether it be clinical, whether it be career decisions, and I need to make a decision, be confident in that, and then move on and not second guess it or not get hung up on it. I second guess myself way too much, Mike. I find myself always looking back and being very hard on myself saying, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And only just recently am I finding that I I need to stop the noise in my head and say, you know, John, you had this much information at the time. You made this decision with that information and you were comfortable with it then. Let's just trust yourself. And I think that's what we're probably saying to anybody uh, for you at home listening right now is we do need to trust ourselves. We need to see where... 100% is too much, dialing it back. And also look at the people around you. How are they functioning? How is management looking at them? How are your other colleagues talking about them? And one of my favorite things that my wife always tells me when I'm starting to get uh, down on myself or hard on myself for what I've done or feel like I haven't done, she always says, the way you're talking to yourself right now, would you talk to your colleague that way? Or would you talk to your friend that way? My answer, of course, almost always is no, that's rude. It's mean. I don't look at them like that. So she says, so why are you talking to yourself like this? Um, I think it's wonderful advice. Let's finish with discussion of high pressure language, because I think this is another one that is notorious for healthcare. This is probably also one, though, that maybe we can make some adjustments. I don't know about you, but how many times your day job have you heard someone say a colleague or a patient or a manager say, this is urgent or this needs to be done ASAP? This is an emergency every day. It was clinic every single day. And one of my favorite things that I always tell colleagues or staff is this is an outpatient psychiatry clinic. There is nothing that is urgent. And I don't mean that flippantly because obviously we have patients that are struggling, but in our setting, just to use psychiatry as an example, if a patient calls the office and they're suicidal, they need to go to the hospital. There's nothing that we're going to do in an outpatient setting that can help them. They need to be hospitalized. Anything short of that is not an emergency. If it's an emergency, they need to go to an emergency room. So I constantly feel like I'm pushing back or holding my, my fingers in the dam to keep the water back on the high pressure language. And I think it's so important to be conscious of that in every single person, whether you're in a leadership role or not, as a licensed healthcare professional, everybody's in leadership, even if it's informal. I think it's imperative that we constantly push back because in healthcare, there are emergencies. 
if you have someone come into the ER and they are hemorrhaging blood, this is an emergency. But at the same time, there's so many times or opportunities to say, no, 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 this is not an emergency. Let's use our normal policy and procedures. Let's not ask people to stay late. Let's not ask people to, to give all of themselves for something that may actually be a routine day-to-day concern, even if the patient views it as an emergency or even if management views it as an emergency. When I was working in the hospital having to cover surgery, I would get these calls from these surgeons and we had some products. One of them was called Novo 7 and it's essentially a clotting agent for somebody who might be bleeding out. And you get this phone call on like their red phone and this guy would be yelling, you've got this guy bleeding out on my table right now. You got to get me this medication now. And we have policies and procedures and it required hospital administration because it was tens of thousands of dollars for just one dose. And, and I remember the time when somebody next to me was like, don't listen to them. It's not an emergency. They're on the table. They've got bypass. They've got all the plasma. They've got fresh frozen blood. They've got uh, fresh, they've got everything. So they will keep the patient alive. Chill out, make your right decision. And it was at that moment, reflecting on that, where anywhere else that I go in my career and in healthcare, there's nobody else that's going to be yelling at me saying somebody's actively dying on the table that I have to make this decision right now. So when I get an email on a Saturday saying, hey, I've got this thing. I need the answer for this ASAP. And I see what the question is. Sometimes I'm going to be honest. I go, yeah, right. Wait till Monday. Like that's not an emergency. Once you've been in the situations where you know what emergency is, uh, you do sometimes have to go at your own pace and set the expectations for others that, oh, John's not available Saturday afternoons. Like he, he doesn't answer those. He's even told me like, I can't, but maybe it's also setting those expectations, but we don't want to overburden ourselves for another person's team, especially when it's not in your company. Uh, as long as it's not reflecting poorly on your company, we just have to make the decisions that are best for ourselves and our teams. Yeah. So I think the takeaway is whatever your role is in healthcare, recognize what is a true emergency or what is a true urgent situation versus not. Because there are emergencies. There are times where we will have to stay late. There are times where we may have to you know, get up in the middle of the night and go into the hospital. Of course that happens. But protect yourself, protect your team against the inappropriate use of those urgent terms, those high pressure terms, because that so often can lead to burnout. When every single day is an emergency, then our sensitivity to true emergencies goes down, our preparedness for real emergencies goes down, but also our our emotional capacity to handle those busy days is going to become frayed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult when we are holding ourselves to other people's deadlines and the fear of having to push a deadline out. How many projects have you been in, Mike, that a deadline's been pushed out? Most. Exactly. So it's like everything that comes through is an emergency for the single project. The deadline's probably have been pushed multiple times on that same project. So it's perspective. But, but I digress. For anyone that wants to dive deeper, the article is from the Harvard Business Review. We went through it in pretty good detail, but I would encourage everyone to go give it a read. And of course, we're so big on networking and LinkedIn. 
it's been really fascinating, at least for me, to see people on LinkedIn sharing this article, discussing it. Um, there's a lot of commentary and critique that you can find of this concept of 85% effort, both specific to healthcare and more broadly in just the business or management space. So it's what triggered John and I to discuss it today. And I would encourage listeners that if you want to dive deeper on these concepts to just go online and search for the Harvard Business Review 85% rule and see what you can find, because there's a lot of really enlightening and interesting discussion occurring online for this. But John, let's switch over to personal items and wrap things up. I'm not going to steal your personal item this time. So if you want, I can go first or I'll defer to you and then finish with mine. I My personal item is I'm a night owl and I love, uh, I, I almost like challenging myself. And when it hits like one o'clock, be like, nah, I've got till two o'clock. I've actually been, I got this new app called Rise and no surprise to anybody listening. Uh, I think I mentioned before I have ADHD. So this one was like a sleep app as well as helping with tools throughout the day. And Mike, I've never paid more attention to an app telling me what to do in my life. So I've been going to bed earlier, you know, between 10 and 11 o'clock. I've been waking up earlier around seven or earlier if I can uh, at the latest seven. Uh, I've been stopping drinking caffeine at a, a specific time. Uh, I have morning peaks and afternoon peaks that I'm following for energy and it's really working. Uh, this Rise app has been great, but I mean, the sleep that I've been getting, oh my God, amazing. I feel so much better throughout the day. Yeah, sleep is so important. It's one of the number one modifiable risk factors for depression, for Alzheimer's, and even physical health. So eight hours of sleep a night should always be the goal for everybody because one of the biggest things that we can do to make our health poor is sleep less than eight hours a night consistently. So that's awesome. For me, my personal item is really exciting. I've been teasing it for quite a while on the show. As we know, I'm really big into hiking and outdoor activities, but I'm also big on you know, doing big objectives that are hard and that push you both physically and mentally. First week of September, my dad, my wife and I, we all went to Las Vegas and then we went up to the Sierra Nevada and hiked Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the continental US. It's 14,500 feet. It was a 22-mile round trip, and it was intense. So we started, just to give a little bit of a timeline so the view, the listeners can appreciate what a day it was. So we flew into Vegas, drove four hours up to Lone Pine, California, had dinner in Lone Pine, went to bed at 7 p.m., got up at 1 a.m., went over to the trailhead. We were hiking at 2 a.m. We summited at 12.30 p.m., so 10 and a half hours from bottom to top. Spent about a half an hour at the summit and then came down, didn't get off the trail until 8 p.m., turned right around and drove four and a half hours back to Vegas. So we got back to our hotel in Vegas at 2 a.m. So it was a 25-hour day with no sleep, with 6,500 feet of elevation gain, 22 miles hiked. So it was crazy. It was intense. It was amazing. And it was one of the you know, peak outdoor experiences of my life. So I am a huge proponent of doing hard things. What I love about hiking and mountain climbing is I really am a strong believer from a, a standpoint of psychological resilience that doing hard things that push yourself mentally and physically in controlled settings will actually prepare you for life adversity. Because if you can kind of learn to do difficult things or manage your your mind in those types of situations, then when other situations come up, 
as they do, you know, loss, you know, job loss, conflict, um, death, things like that, you're hopefully going to be in a better position to handle it. So I, I really believe in outdoor activities or, you know, achievement oriented activities because I think they're fun. I think I'm a competitive person, but also I think it sets us up for better emotional well-being. But yeah, it was a fun experience. We did it for my dad's 60th birthday. He wanted to do something epic when he turned 60s. It's funny because this was supposed to be like the pinnacle hike. My dad wanted to do it at 60 because he isn't sure, you know, as he gets older, if he's going to be able to continue to do these physically epic things. And the very next day we got off the mountain and he was already talking about what hike we should do next. So we're Mm going to maybe look at either the Grand Canyon doing a rim to rim where you hike from one rim to the other. Um, or maybe Half Dome in Yosemite. That's another really epic hike. Lots of fun. And I strongly, strongly recommend anyone else that's out there that A, wants to get into outdoor activity. It's really wonderful. It's a great way to to have outdoor recreation or have a hobby that can be really easy to enter. But also B, there's some pretty epic stuff that you can do out there that uh, are very achievement oriented and can really be a nice feather in your cap. So one question for you, who drove back? Uh, mostly me. We were reaching the point at like 1 a.m., been up for 24 hours, been hiking the whole day. Uh, my wife and my dad were both conked out in the car. I was like, all right, I, I I guess I feel good physically. I felt okay, so I felt like I could drive, but then I was getting fatigued. So I woke my dad up and I was like, I need you to drive. I just need a cat nap. He drove for about a half an hour and I woke up when he hit the rumble strip. Thankfully, just a 15-minute cat nap was all I needed and then we were able to power through and get to Vegas. So Oh, that sounds awesome, man. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. There's a, I shoot, I forget the Japanese term, uh, but there's a term of, you know, doing something epic and intentional every year. It's definitely fit that. So maybe we'll make a newsletter out of that. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is White Coats of the Roundtable. If you like what you hear, subscribe and even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.